welcome to the final CapEx podcast of the weird and not particularly wonderful year that has been 2020. And it's only fitting that we should be recording this over a Zoom channel, shorn of the warmth of personal contact by the iniquities of the Rona, um, which I realise sounds a bit like a Tolkien novel. Anyway, for our final rundown of 2020 and our awards, I'm delighted to be joined by our deputy editor, Alice Denby. Hello. And from the Institute of Economic Affairs, the wonderful Emma Revel. Hi, John. And last but not least, salad impresario and competition guru, Sam Bowman, who is Director of Competition at the International Centre for Law and Economics. I think I got that right. Well, I always get it wrong, but um, you, you've beaten me to it, so hello. <laughs> there we go. All right. So, without much further ado, we're going to have a list of various different categories. Everyone's going to choose their one. And our first category is Moment of the Year. Uh, Alice, we'll start with you. What was your moment of the year? My favourite moment of this year was when the SNP MP Margaret Ferrier travelled from Scotland down to London with COVID symptoms. Having already taken a test, she then found out she was positive and took the train back up to Glasgow. Um, and she said later in an interview that coronavirus makes you act out of character. I wasn't aware that was one of the main symptoms. But um, basically, I just love how flagrant she was um not just flouting the rules and basic common sense but refusing to resign even when nicola sturgeon called on her very strongly to do so and she's still an mp to this day and i just think good on her yeah i think if one thing characterizes <laughs> the scottish nationalists it's not nationalism it's just not giving a crap what anyone else thinks of what they do and then just <laughs> plowing on um sam what was yours um, mine is kind of not funny. It's it's boringly sincere. Um, it's the Pfizer vaccine announcement, um, which basically was the kind of the beginning of the end. And, um, you know, waking up that Monday morning and seeing that that we had not just a 70 percent or 60 percent efficacy vaccine, as um, I think I and most other people had expected, but a 90 percent efficacy or better efficacy vaccine. Um, I mean, it really it's it's just changed everything. And it just means that this pretty awful year is about to is going to end more or less at the end of the year or early next year and we can get back to normal get back on with our lives and um yeah it's a it's really a kind of testament to science and capitalism um the yeah. fact that we have not just one now but several um vaccine candidates many more being tested and coming online and um at the kind of time we're recording this more than a hundred thousand people have already been vaccinated in the uk um it's really kind of amazing and also it makes me somewhat proud uh, although i'm not particularly patriotic in any way um but somewhat proud that the country i've chosen to live in the uk has been the first in the world to um test the vaccines and approve them for um widespread use and that's um, pretty cool yeah i think that's a very good choice uh, i also really like the fact that as soon as pfizer came out with theirs the russian government decided to come and say that sputnik is it v or five i don't know five um, i think Sputnik sure, 5 yeah. uh, has an even higher efficacy rate than Pfizer, um, although we're not allowed to see any of the data or trials or <laughs> anything like that. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's fine. Um, I'm gonna, my own one is in a similar vein to Sam's. We'll come to Emma's in a minute because hers, I have to say, is probably my favourite. Mine is when, when Boris came on TV back in March and did this sort of solemn, almost wartime address about lockdown, where he's like, must stay at home. And it was just bizarre seeing this, uh, this sort of 
normally jocular, slightly whimsical character um, suddenly turn shifting tone so dramatically um, and also just telling us all to stay in for weeks and weeks on end and everyone just kind of going along with it whether you agree with it or not it was very uh, there was very little kind of kickback to essentially being told by the government you can't leave your house um, which I guess I find in hindsight quite quite concerning that people have that little regard to their own liberty um speaking maybe it's, maybe liberty, it's maybe they have regard for their own health um you do, know remember health and liberty are both very valuable not, things not, i should stress at this point i'm not really like a lockdown skeptic it just, <laughs> just surprised me how quiescent people were um there were tiny little protests but not much more but speaking of liberty emma's um moment of the year oh no that was your hero of the year but i think moment of the year was um my, my moment of the year is still about freedom. You know, yeah. it was still a day I enjoyed. I mean, Sam has been uh, a proper serious grown up as he is and picked the moment that it, it genuinely did start to end and we had a vaccine and, you know, everything goes back to normal. I picked yeah. the moment where it felt like that was true, even though with hindsight, it wasn't. And that was the 4th of July when the pubs reopened. Um, I'm not a massive fan of pubs. I don't drink. So, you know, pubs to me are sort of a place where I stand and drink a Diet Coke while everyone else has a great time. Um, but I was in the pub at 10 o'clock in the morning for work, I might add. I didn't just rush out. I was doing some was live radio. Mike Graham and uh, people? Yes. Yeah. Talk radio live stream, three hours, live from the Arizona pub. does like the pub. He does. I mean, when he said he was going to do a live stream from a pub, I thought, yeah, I'm not surprised by that at all. Yeah. But they said, you know, come join us, do your 10 minutes on air talking about the economics of, of lockdown and why it's great that pubs have reopened. But by the way, we are going to stay here all day and just keep <laughs> drinking and have a great time. And, you know, it was wonderful. It was the most normal thing I'd done in four or five months. You know, I got properly dressed up. I didn't just sit around the house in the newly yeah. bought loungewear. So, it, you know, in hindsight, was it a great idea? Probably not. And, and it didn't yeah. pan out as well as I'd hoped. But in that day, it, it was a really great moment to just see people getting back to normal, getting back to pubs, seeing friends. Yeah, we will come on to the kind of slightly catastrophic policies of the summer in, in due course. Um, but our second, our second category, um, one I quite enjoy, we've all chosen quite different things here, um, is hero of the year. Um, so Sam, do you want to kick us off? Who is your hero of 2020? Yeah, and I should say, um, kind of looking at other people's choices for all of these categories, I'm the kind of boring, uh, serious, uh, <laughs> serious one, choosing the, uh, cho trying to kind of make this about money and um, finance. But um, my hero of the year, uh, yeah, always, that's me. My hero of the year is um, the Federal Reserve's chairman, Jay Powell, um, and his money printer going burr. Um, it's absolutely phenomenal what the Federal Reserve has done. Um, it's, it's bought $3 trillion worth of assets in just one year, less than a year, bringing, you know, almost doubling the Fed's balance sheet. And that includes all of the asset purchases throughout the 2000 and 2010s um, during the Great Recession and so on. Um, and it's absolutely staggering how successful it's been. Um, you know, personal expenditures are where they were 14 months ago after having shut down huge parts of the US economy. Um, in, all, in almost any other situation, we would expect this to create an absolutely catastrophic long-term recession or depression. And um, the use of monetary policy um, in, in, in line really with what Milton Friedman and other monetarist economists um, predicted and recommended, the use of monetary policy to offset that, um, that contraction 
um, obviously hasn't meant that we're not any poorer, but has meant that the kind of knock-on effects, which can be even more disastrous, um, may have been largely avoided and may be largely avoided. And it's not just good for this, it's not just good for the recovery as we come out of this, but it means that we may have learned, not, if not how to cure recessions in the future, but how to make them much less severe. All right. So that, that was a very serious one, Sam. But um, we've got to add some, you know, add some intellectual heft to our more banter-heavy answers. Alice, your, yours is pretty pretty serious as well. Sam's gone for one individual who's kind of at a high-ranking position. You've you've gone for something quite different. Yeah, I mean, my choice now feels a bit corny after that kind of serious uh, policy one. But um, but I've gone for the vaccine volunteers, um, people who volunteered to take a completely untested new drug and then basically had to go out and get the virus um yeah. i just think they've saved the world and um thanks very much yeah. well thank thank you very much i'm going in on friday for mine i'm um, going to be part of, the, one of the one of the oh, vaccine trials on friday yeah oh, so um, i'm in the, um, I'm in the yeah. testing the ons <laughs> testing trial um, That's much more unpleasant because you have to have a, a rod stuck up your nose every I couple of weeks, I also have right? to stick a rod up my Todd two-year-old daughter's nose. Which oh, I thought you were going to say something completely else. It's not something there. she enjoys one bit. Um, it's an absolute shambles, though. Like They don't tell you they're coming until midnight or something the day before, and then you're like, well, I'm not in. Oh, So they do it in person? They do it in yeah. person? Yeah, they come. Wow, well, I, I assumed it was, all, it was all done remotely with Amazon or something. You can do it and then they'll pick it up, but they have to come around and give it to you, for example, the first time. I mean, it's not absolutely terrible. It's just quite terrible. So like a lot of the British response. To, <laughs> could to be worse, things. but definitely could be better. It could be better. Um, You're again, a hero I think, too, um, John. <laughs> sorry. Um, again, I think Emma's got the answer that is a really good finisher for this category. So I'm gonna, my one is also, my hero of the year is also quite um, a serious one. And it's, apologies to any Chinese speakers, uh, Li Wenliang, who was the doctor in Wuhan, who raised the alarm about COVID, was silenced and then died of the disease. Um, just think a really, a phenomenally brave person and also a totem of uh, all the, worst practices of the Chinese Communist Party and what they have. I mean, we can talk about Western countries' re responses and we have, and we've done them to death, but I think um, at the risk of sounding a bit earnest, you shouldn't lose sight of the villainy of the Chinese government and what they've inflicted on the rest of the world uh, by trying to hide the vaccine in the first place. On which note, Emma's hero of the year. <laughs> you can't then pivot to me. This is so Think unfair. About a guy people, on a jet ski. <laughs> people are going to think I haven't taken this seriously at all. And I no, have. I, I worked really hard on my answers. But I've still gone for my hero in kind of a social media sense of he's a complete legend. Uh, and that's Dale McLaughlin, who is from uh, North Ayrshire and was working pre-COVID in the Isle of Man a very nice girl started dating he had to go back then the isle of man because it had so few cases put massive restrictions on he really missed his girlfriend and decided to rent a jet ski despite the fact he he'd it, even better. Well, either, either way he'd never been on one in his yeah. life he thought the 25 mile or so journey would take about 45 minutes it took him four hours but he <laughs> jet skied to the isle of man and then had to apparently walk for several miles to his girlfriend's house based on where he landed because he really missed her 
And I thought that was lovely. I mean, not in, you know, we should be obeying restrictions. You probably shouldn't be jet skiing across large bodies of water. But in the internet definition of a hero in 2020, yeah, he's he's ticked the box for me. Four hour, a four-hour jet ski over the Irish Sea is punishment <laughs> enough, I think. Um, that's, that's <laughs> He's now in jail, so... One of the worst things that, you could possibly do to yourself. On the, uh, on the jet ski. Absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. It sounds like it sounds like a living hell. I hate that kind of... I hate being on the water anyway, so, um, yeah, that, that, that really would... I read, when you sent... Uh, when you submitted your response, Emma, I, I looked it up, and apparently all I loved is that the girlfriend thought he'd been on the Isle of Man for two weeks yeah. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently when, when the police caught them, she said, oh, well, I thought he was just working elsewhere on the island and we hadn't seen each other. <laughs> Denied our knowledge of the jet ski. Well, and I should add, he was imprisoned for doing Yeah, that. he's in jail. <laughs> like, I mean, because he broke the rules, but yeah. his dedication to maintaining social contacts during a pandemic, I have a little bit of respect for. Yeah, I think you're going to do it. <laughs> Go the whole yeah. hog. Right. I don't want to put us into the gutter, but um, do you think she you know, made it worth his while? <laughs> well, I don't know how long he was there between arriving and getting caught, but if they had the chance, I really, really hope so. If not, she should when he gets out. Sure. I don't know if he's been released yet. Anyway, we'll have to find out. Dale McLaughlin, everyone. Um, I think he's my hero of heroes, actually. Okay, from you get in touch, Dale, if you... Yeah, Dale, if, Dale, if you do listen to the Capes podcast, then uh, you get in touch. Our villain of the year. Uh, we have some very villainous characters here. Alice, we'll kick off with you. A titan of British retail. Yes, well, I mean, I think so. I think probably the Chinese Communist Party has done more global harm this year. But for me personally, um, Sir Philip Green is my villain of the year. Topshop was the iconic brand of my teenage years, and he's just allowed <laughs> it to completely be swallowed up. Um, he's completely failed to keep up with what consumers actually want. So other brands like ASOS and Primark have completely taken over. And he just also comes across as a really gross, horrible man who constantly just gets photographed with his arm around supermodels. And I just think he seems like an asshole. So he's my villain of the year. Tell us what you really think. Uh, <laughs> there was also a brilliant photograph where a Philip Green had been really rude to the photographer. So the photographer decided to photograph him with two small bushes either side, which made him look like a giant penis. Um, which I thought was very funny indeed. Uh, I should mention the um, obviously the Topshop employees whose jobs and pensions yeah. he's completely screwed over. Yeah. yeah, it's not the first green business that's gone south either. That's we should have. No. So, from one villain to another, uh, Sam, yours is more COVID-y. Yeah, I actually started doing my list saying I don't want to do any COVID. It, you know, we had a really COVID-heavy year, but um, it really, it pretty much is the most important thing that's happened in um, my life apart from maybe the fall of the Berlin Wall. And um, it's hard to get away from it. So I apologize for being so monomaniacal. Um, <laughs> my villain of the year is actually more of a kind of idiot of the year. Um, and um, the villains are the people who listen to her. Um, so the idiot of the year is Sunetra Gupta, the um, Oxford academic, who in March said that 50% um, of the UK may have already had COVID, uh, according to a model that she generated without any actual data. In May said that COVID was behind us and that it may have an IFR, an infection fatality rate of 0.01%, uh, which would uh, mathematically have required the UK to have a population of 360 million people and for everybody, literally everybody to have had it already. Um, she led then, she was completely undeterred by that, um, by being wrong. 
um, led the Great Barrington Declaration, which I think has suckered a lot of people into thinking that um, there are easy answers to COVID. And um, that, I mean, all of that is, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with being wrong. There's nothing wrong with being dumb, but um, the, the villains really are the people who listen to her. And um, the Sunday Times this weekend um, reported that she had been invited into Downing Street in September and that she was one of the um, people who had convinced the prime minister not to lock down in September and to lock down much later, which I think with hindsight was a really, really big mistake. Um, it's really, really um, shocking to me that she keeps getting taken seriously and that her kind of cohort of cranks keep getting treated as if they um, really know what they're talking about by anybody. I think it's a sort of object lesson in any, if you can stick Oxford University in front of your name, people will listen to you regardless of what you're actually yeah. saying. There are other kind of totemic figures you might have picked. I know Anders Tegnell, for example, might have been one. He's the Swedish. Yeah, the, the, chief, the Swedish chief epidemiologist. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's hard to know what's really going on there. I, I read a great piece on um, one of my favorite websites, CapEx, the other day yeah. that, um, by a Swede that um, argued that really what looks to the outside world like a kind of liberal de decision, you know, the decision that it's just really not right to impose lockdowns on people and let people make decisions for themselves is actually more um, likely explained by bureaucratic incompetence. And um, the Swedish state is very interestingly set up, um, unlike most countries where um, public agencies effectively answer to the government. In Sweden, public agencies have a huge amount of autonomy and it's very, very difficult for the government to override them on a lot of decision making. And it's kind of like a technocrat's dream. And I am very, very um, sympathetic to technocracy. I'm very, very sympathetic to the idea of, you know, tying the hands of politicians and letting um, supposed experts make decisions. But this is a real, um, I mean, I really have to say I've significantly adjusted my um, views of technocracy by looking at Sweden and what happens when somebody with a really bad idea, who's very, very attached to that idea, gets mm. to um, really do whatever they want um, with no public constraint at all. Yeah, and we'll come on uh, onto the idea of adjusting views in our next segment, Sam, because one of your uh, answers is very closely linked to that. But anyway, villain of the year, another covid -y one, um, and a slightly different tag. Uh, Emma, you've gone for, I think, someone from the World Health Organization. Uh, yeah, Dr. Uh, Tendros Adhanom, who's the Director General of the uh, World Health Organization. This category I did take very seriously, by the way. Um, who, you know, basically the World Health Organization are the premier global organization who are supposed to handle and coordinate international responses to pandemics. And they failed, they've categorically failed at basically every stage. Um, you know, at the beginning of the year when we already knew that we were seeing infection clusters in China, uh, Taiwan raised a number of concerns saying, you know, we've heard reports of this, we've started to see one or two infections, should we be doing something? The World Health Organization basically ignored Taiwan completely uh, and have sidelined Taiwan all the way through, um, presumably to maintain good relationships with China. Um, as a result, you know, the, the information that Taiwan had that could have been passed on to the rest of the world very quickly was completely ignored. They criticized travel bans against China, saying that it would create fear and stigma that was worse than the virus. I think we all know that's not true. Um, they criticized the use of face masks and said they were ineffective. The World Health Organization has spent the last sort of five, 10 years focusing uh, almost exclusively on, on lifestyle economics. You know, they're, they're focused on universal healthcare, gender inequality, and whether or not you agree that these are important issues, that is not the primary focus of the World Health Organization. It is pandemics and infectious diseases, and they have 
you know, fundamentally dropped the ball, while at the same time as cozying up to China, who I think we can all agree, you know, are a, a, a repulsive regime in charge. Uh, and yet, uh, Tendros Adenom comp- um, praised China's commitment to transparency in the early stages of the pandemic. I mean, you know, if they had been transparent, we'd probably have coped a hell of a lot better than we have because we'd have known exactly how this disease was transmitted. Whereas actually in January, the World Health Organization said that there was no evidence of of human to human transmission. Yeah, I slightly push back on that. Um, I agree with you. The WHO has been terrible, but um, I think you're being a little bit too kind to Western governments here because um, we did have a lot of knowledge about how it was transmitted. We did have a lot of knowledge about how bad it was. Um, I mean, Italy had a first wave long before um, the case numbers were large enough in the UK, for example, that we wouldn't have been able to act swiftly and stop it and nip it in the bud, as you know, Norway and Denmark did at, um, in the first wave. And um, I, I really don't believe that Western governments would have done very much differently because when they did have that information, they didn't do anything differently. And um, I mean, I, I, that's very true. You know, we we've performed really badly with the information we did have, and you know, if we'd had that information three months earlier, we may have still made the same terrible decisions. But we'd have at least had three months of a head start in which to, you know, fuck it up. Three <laughs> months of quicker. terrible decisions. <laughs> um, right. Uh, so I'm from China, sorry, from a bit of China bashing from Emma, I'm gone. My villain of the year is the China basher in chief, Donald Trump. It's a bit of a boring choice. I've gone, I've gone for him for villain more in a kind of pantomime villain sense, because there's been a kind of air of total predictability about the way that he has behaved since the election. And it's his kind of commitment to the... the um, the shtick that I find so remarkable. I, I expected a bit in the sort of week or so after. I didn't expect still, you know, more than a month after the election result, him to still be banging on about it and talking about how he doesn't get to make his case in the Supreme Court or anything. And I do think that actually, on a serious note, what he's done has, for a large amount, has made an already extremely polarised society even more so. Um, that wasn't very articulate of me. Um, just... He's made a lot of his supporters believe that elections, that the democracy isn't real, that elections are rigged. And the, the great irony may be that the Republicans end up losing the Georgia Senate because some Trump heads don't go out uh, and vote because they think it's all a fix, um, which would kind of be a perfect ending to it all for me. So, yeah, I'm, I've gone with him um, and good riddance, frankly. I have to say, though, as uh, somebody who bets on politics, I've been very grateful for all the um, deluded idiots betting against me. Uh, and I've been able to significantly increase my winnings in the months. Have uh, you got your money yet, Sam? Yeah, it came through today. So wow. I'm honest, Literally um, about five I don't, weeks. Don't, donated 10% to charity. I, and I encourage all of my fellow bettors to donate 10% of their winnings to charity as a tithe. Uh, to, it, it buys an indulgence so that um, when you're being weighed up, you go into heaven. Um, having paid a tithe of your, of, your, of your winnings, it nullifies the um, sin that is betting. So it's, uh, it's good for you and good for the world. Well, excellent. I think that's a lovely festive message, Sam. Um, right. So we've had heroes, villain. We now come to a slightly more abstract category, which is idea of the year. And then we're going to have policy of the year. These are a little bit similar. So idea of the year can kind of, you can interpret that as loosely as you want, whereas policy of the year is generally kind of a British government policy. So idea of the year. Uh, Emma, do you want to kick us off here? I mean, I feel really bad going first because I stole this idea off Alice because I couldn't think of anything else. 
And I thought, oh, that's a good idea. I'll just put that too, which was very bad of me. But she's thought of other things, so that's fine. Um, despite earlier saying that I didn't massively enjoy pubs and I don't drink, I am still able to appreciate the joy that is the takeaway pint and the normalisation of a takeaway pint. I think for over the summer when I was meeting up with friends in parks outside in groups of less than six, the fact that they could go to the pub and support the pub as opposed to, you know, buying probably arguably cheaper beers from a supermarket, you know, they really wanted a draft pint. And the fact that it came in a plastic cup with a lid, well, they were willing to live with that. It's enabled businesses to keep running. You know, it's not going to be enough to save them, but it, it, you know... it's better than nothing um and it it did bring a sense of normal for that brief period in the summer when it when the weather was nice we could all be outside and and see friends so i i think that's a win i hope it stays now we're in tier three a lot of my local pubs in southeast london are doing a sort of click and collect system so they've basically just got their wi-fi and their website kind of outside you go and you get in your phone and you fill out a form and then i mean it's ludicrous that pubs are having to do this but you have to really admire the innovation yeah. um they're doing everything they can to stay open even in these mad circumstances and i think more around. broadly as well you know relaxing the rules about what whether or not you have to have a certain kind of planning permission before you can do takeaway food you know th- that has been so important for businesses and you know small re- restaurants and cafes to keep going during the pandemic and the fact that that regulation was ever needed is bonkers and i really hope it doesn't it doesn't return yeah, I mean, the, the saying takeaway pints is your idea of the year sounds on the surface a little bit like jocular, but it is a kind of one of a whole category of things that businesses have had to do. And it's been pretty amazing to see how well they've adjusted. And, and, and as you said as well, the government managed to change some things really, really quickly, such as Robert Jenrick changing the laws on pubs allowing uh, to open. We'll come on to the other policies in due course, but... Uh, Yes, it's been, a, it's been a year of not just despair, but also great innovation. Um, so, uh, Alice, what was yours when you've dispensed with pints, as Emma's taken that off you? So what's your... Uh... Um, so I went a bit meta with this one, and my idea of the year is the science. Um, so the very concept that ideas themselves can actually solve our problems. I think it's a bit of a huge pivot from having had enough to experts to now thinking that scientists have all the answers when in fact on loads of aspects of this virus the science is very unclear and it's kind of guesstimates but we now think that the science uh just follow that and we'll be all right so i think that's quite a change in uh in the culture okay i'm with you on that i've written a few columns on the idea of the science it's a phrase that also that greta thunberg really loves to say is that there's this just entirely unimpeachable body of knowledge. Again, I should stress, I'm not, I don't disagree with climate change. I just disagree that it's one single thing that we should just react in a certain way to without any assessment of costs or benefits, which is kind of similar to how it's been presented in uh, this year as well. Sam, yours is also to do with kind of judgment. um, And it's something that's got a bit of an unfairly bad rep from certain corners of the commentariat. So what's your idea of so my, yeah, my idea actually is very related to Alice's. Um, it, the big idea is the idea of super forecasting, but actually the idea is forecasting in general. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is holding people to account for their predictions, getting people to make testable predictions and adjusting how much we listen to their future predictions based on how accurate they've been in the past. 
Um, there's a reason that commentators, uh, commentators hate this kind of thing because their careers are built on making wild predictions and you know getting one out of every 20 wild predictions right and then saying, pointing to that and saying, ah, well, you see, I called this one out of 20, I called this one right, and then just ignore all the other ones I made. And um, super forecasting is just the idea that this is something that you can get better at. This is a skill that you can learn and you can, um, there, are, there are techniques that um, you can learn. It's not a kind of God-given gift of foresight or anything. It's just learning how to see through the noise or, or kind of, or, or listen through the noise and hear the signal. And, um, you know, there've been some really good examples of this. Um, and, and it's always nice because they're not really massively credentialed people. Um, you know, I, two people who come to mind are um, both friends of mine, Saloni Jutani and Jonathan Kitson, who write for, um, in fact, CapEx. And yeah, yeah and, and um, both of whom were tracking the vaccine throughout the year and arguing that um, compared to what most people thought, a vaccine was much more likely um, to be sooner rather than later. And, um, you know, I, I think it's it's just amazing to see them vindicated and to see that kind of that approach of of, of testing your predictions and, and and putting them out there so that other people can test them being um, being laid out and being so successful. Um, and and on the kind of bad side, the flip side of the of forecasting is the kind of endless people who just made constant contingent um, wrong predictions about COVID. Um, you know. We've, we've already got mass immunity. T cells will mean that we can't have a second spike. Um, Sweden, um, you know, suicides have spiked, um, which it turns out they hadn't. Um, rising testing means rising case numbers. Uh, there is no excess mortality. You know, all these predictions that have been thrown out by very, very prominent and influential people, um, but then really just they forget about, everybody forgets about as soon as it turns out that they were just plain wrong. And, um, you know, like I say, there's nothing wrong with being wrong, but if you're consistently wrong, then the rest of us should be should be adjusting how much we listen to on that basis. All right, um, I couldn't agree more with pretty much everything there, Sam. I got so so sick of people snidely on Twitter going super forecasters when it it also refers to a very specific group of people in uh, Philip Tetlock's Good Judgment Project who are consistently good and adjust their um forecast constantly and are the opposite of the kind they, they imply it's intellectually arrogant to claim you're a super mm. forecaster. the people mm. who are good at it are exactly the opposite of that um don't claim expertise have big groups of people they correspond with all the time um yeah. and, I think and, often, and often and often non-experts you know what's really interesting is that it's not that they're finding phds who are absolute um absolutely immersed in the current affairs of afghanistan and so can be really are really good at predicting civil strife in afghanistan it's actually it turns out um people who tend to be good at this are often very run-of-the-mill um they're, they're very run-of-the-mill lives you know they're they're maybe um house husbands or housewives or you know they run a small business in rural germany or something and it's it's the techniques of um really trying to look through the um wild predictions and look through the kind of the the the, the hype um that allow them to apparently consistently predict better than average and um that's quite encouraging because it means that maybe others can learn that as well yeah um, and I would encourage anyone to go and read Philip Tetlock's book because it's very interesting and it will make you rethink how you approach these kinds of problems as well, I think. So that's uh, Super Forecasting, which is Sam's idea of the year, uh, which only leaves my own. Uh, mine is, uh, I guess it's almost like a buzz phrase rather than an idea, but it's social distancing. 
I just come to absolutely despise this phrase because it sums up all the kind of petty fogging approach to the corona regulations, which even though in my non-emotional brain, I know are designed to help minimize the spread of the disease and all that, I still just can't help but look at these signs and think there's something really silly about them. Um, and that's the phrase itself, I just, am I alone here, guys? It's just, just a strange phrase. It's, it's not social distancing, it's physical more than anything. Um, and it's just, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm just sick to the death of hearing it and can't wait to stop hearing it and seeing signs everywhere saying it. It always annoys me when um, jargon kind of becomes commonly accepted and used. Um, like, like you say, it doesn't really mean anything. It's not really, I mean, like I kind of get what people mean by distancing, but that's not really the point, especially um, if it's given that it's transmitted in, aerosol, like in, in an aerosolized way. It's more like indoor avoidance or something, but, but <laughs> it's just kind of jargon that's just become, everybody says it without even thinking about it. And yeah, it just feels like we're, we lose a slight bit of meaning in our lives when um, that happens. It also conveys, I think, uh, particularly the signs with the kind of two-metre width arrow, mm. this illusion of technocratic precision to the whole thing, like, aha, uh, at two metres, you'll be safe, whereas at, at one or 1.5, you might not be. But as you say, Sam, it's all a bit illusory. As with the whole hand-washing stuff at the beginning, the beginning of the pandemic, the more you learn, the more you start to think, actually, why have we been doing all this stuff all along and making such a fuss about it when we hear almost nothing about things like ventilation um yeah. outdoor stuff i remember at the beginning people including you were saying we should be subsidizing heaters outdoors in pub gardens and stuff like that and we never really heard anything i think that would have been far more effective than trying to get people indoors and mm. doing things we should have been facilitating people doing things outdoors where there was evidently less risk so that's my little corona rant um <laughs> right well, that need, leads us, I mean, quite neatly onto the, the our penultimate categories, policy of the year. Um, these are pretty much all COVID related, but we'll, we'll have to run through these quite, quite quickly because we are, we are short on time now. Um, Alice, do you want to kick us off with one of the, another bit of jargon, I think? Uh, sure, I mean, wish I had one that wasn't COVID related, but um, it is Wales's firebreak lockdown. Uh, it just didn't work. Um, cases in Wales are higher than they've ever been. You know, at the time, Keir Starmer was saying that we needed one in, in England. Well, what evidence was that based on? Um, I just have the, the feeling that all the devolved administrations are just trying to do something slightly stricter, slightly sooner than England, and winds me up. So... <laughs> I think the whole Welsh response has been absolutely farcical. I mean, in fact, they let pubs open, but then said they couldn't serve alcohol. It was really strange. And then we had all this stuff about whether they let people in from England. And yeah, like you say, it's Scotland's, like differentiation for the sake of it seems to have been the order of the yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. Scotland's the same with the restaurants can open until six, but can't serve alcohol. I don't know where we got this idea that sort of temperance and puritanism would somehow get rid of COVID. <laughs> Very Scottish, to be fair. Um, it's uh, at least it's re return to tradition, at least. Yeah, yeah. It's the Donald Farfrae tendency for any McCarty fans out there. Uh, Emma, yours is probably the policy of the year. Well, I mean, I, I know that's the category, but it's the one that has probably <laughs> had the most the most impact of any of them, rather than just being our favourite. Well, yeah, I decided not to make a particular value judgment or good policy, bad policy, and just went for the one that probably is going to stick in people's minds, and that is, you know, it's furlough. 
it didn't really exist in the British system. You know, we didn't really have this idea of furlough before. And now everyone knows what it is. They may not understand necessarily the detail of what the government will pay, won't pay at certain dates, but everyone knows someone who's been on furlough, has been on furlough. Um, and yeah, it's, it's had good and bad. You know, we at the IEA earlier, especially earlier in the year, criticised, you know, repeated extensions to the scheme saying, look, businesses are not going to be valid, uh, not going to be viable at the end of this that we're at the beginning and the government shouldn't be subsidizing wages but actually i think now i tend to agree more with matt kilcoin at the asi of of just do it we've spent so much money at this stage if the vaccine can be rolled out by easter just a just a little bit more is fine you know the, the additional spending and furlough so far has cost i think 43 billion pounds is the most up-to-date figures i can find that's in normal times would be an astonishing amount of money in COVID, you know, it's a lot, but we've spent, you know, hundreds of billions at this stage. So I think whether it turns out to be good or bad in the long run, it's going to be the, the policy that defines 2020. Yeah, the fiscal Overton window sort of shattered in a thousand pieces. Yes. It hasn't house. moved, it's, it's like it. Like, yeah, 10 billion there, what the hell? Like we've wasted so much money on test and trace that it's just kind of the occasional yeah. item in the you know, we talked about the NHS IT cock up for about 10 years after it happened. <laughs> Spent more than that on test and trace already. Um, and it doesn't get anything like the coverage. Sam, your policy of the year. Uh, I think you've chosen two, one of which we are about to publish a piece this very day on CapEx about, which I like, um, which is to do with housing. And, and the other one is your kind of bad policy of the year. So do you want to just sure. quickly run through them? Yeah, the bad policy, um, although I personally, in fact, I because I personally benefited from it so much is eat out to help out. Um, I, I eat out to help out, subsidize people to go to restaurants. Um, the fact that I, a reasonably well-off young um, urban liver in London, uh, was able to fleece the taxpayer for over a hundred pounds, um, I mean, should tell you enough that it's not a very good idea to begin with. But um, the really the reason that it's a bad idea or really the reason that I've chosen it is that it sums up the completely insane pro-virus approach of the government um, throughout the year to be honest, I think pretty much everything the government's done, the, the easiest, the Occam's razor approach to understanding what um, what is going on in, in uh, number 10 right now is that the virus is running the government and everything the government is doing is the bare minimum that it has to do because public opinion is really hawkish on COVID. But um, the government, and I'm, I'm, I'm just for in case people can't see, can't hear me smiling, I'm, I'm, jo I'm kind of joking when I say this, I'm being facetious, but so much of what it has done has, seems to have been kind of at least, if not intended to spread the virus, um, really with no thought whatsoever and paying people, subsidizing people to crowd inside restaurants, um, right as everybody was coming back from their holidays in Spain, which brought back a, a lot of COVID cases. And then just before sending people to schools and universities um, by law uh, to schools, I mean, really just what seems to me to be totally crazy. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't blame Eat Out to Help Out for all of the second wave, of course, but I think it certainly contributed and it sums up a really, really crazy um, series of decisions that the government made. The good policy is uh, street votes, which is this idea that we should let individual streets vote on um, how dense they are in terms of housing. And um, this is potentially going to be in the government's uh, planning reform bill. And I think it could be transformational for a lot of cities. It could really allow much more density, which would be great for local businesses. It would be great for people who rent and for people who want to buy, um, because it would mean there's more, um, there are more places to buy. And it would be great for existing homeowners because the value of their properties will rise because they can build more on them. Um, it's a real win, win, win. And um, if it happens, 
um, it could be great. And because in the theme of every single thing I say has to have something to do with COVID, um, it's worth stressing that um, number of people per household is a pretty good predictor of how bad COVID outbreaks have been in Europe. And um, you know, one reason, for example, that Sweden's outbreak wasn't as bad as um, a lot of other countries, despite not having the same kinds of kind of restrictions that it probably should have and it, that its neighbors had. Yeah, it's been interesting actually. A lot, of, yeah, a lot of the the ways different countries have responded to the virus sometimes have seemed to be almost regardless of what their their government has done, and has just been down to demographics. Or Italy, say, lots of old people living with younger relatives definitely didn't help them in the in the early stages. Right, and my policy of the year, which has been in no way influenced by the fact that I am in the middle of moving house is the stamp duty holiday. Um, I would just like to encourage anyone at the Treasury who is listening to this podcast to extend it, because otherwise it's going to cost me loads of money. Uh, Jokes aside, I think this has been a policy that's been coming for a long time. We've been lobbying fiercely for it. It's a crap tax. Literally, I've never heard anyone come out with a decent argument in favour of it beyond that isn't just it raises a lot of money. Well, there are infinite ways you can raise money that aren't anything like as damaging as this. Bit of a capex hobby horse, but yeah. So the stamp duty holiday, it's given us a little window into a, a world of much lower stamp duty. And I think, and you know, transactions are up. The housing market, even in a pandemic, has been pretty buoyant. So, you know, just imagine what it will do when all these restrictions are lifted. Um, so I really, really hope they carry on with that. Um, and reform our other property taxes like council tax being the obvious candidate um yeah so hopefully something something good will come out of the uh, of covid in terms of um the long-term kind of policy landscape right uh we're gonna have to we're gonna finish off with our, a quick run through from everyone so we've got reasons to be fearful uh of which i'm sure there are plenty for 2021 and reasons to be cheerful so we'll start with fearful emma I mean, your last answer so leads me nicely into my reasons to be fearful, which is that even in yep. a pandemic, house prices haven't fallen. Yes. They have continued to rise in London. They are rising exactly as fast as they were rising before the pandemic. I mean, I understand that now where people live is even more important to them. You know, it was important before, but now, I mean, all four of us appear to be in our houses recording this. We work from home most, if not all of the time. So you value your physical space more and that's completely fine. But as someone trapped by the UK's utterly terrible housing policy and even today you know the government have announced they've scrapped their algorithm to build more houses in the south and London even in a pandemic housing and home ownership is no more affordable to me than it was before Um, but my reason to be cheerful and this is a bit of a trying to put a spin on a terrible situation is that I have a very faint hope that possibly the catastrophic disaster that has been government and state handling not just in the UK but pretty much everywhere of a pandemic will sow the seeds of a sort of uh, a liberalism uh, a libertarianism possibly in some of the population that they will be less keen to suggest that actually the government is the solution to all of our problems because as 2020 has proved the government isn't the solution to very much. All right yeah I mean I, I share that hope although I would say hope rather than kind of optimism um i was i was much <laughs> I, I was more realistic about it in sort of yeah. april than i am now it yeah. has waned over 2020 yeah. i think people just blame the tories rather than government in general and i think that the sort of lefty argument of ah well we just need to fund things quote unquote properly 
um, will always have a certain appeal to it. Okay, uh, Alice, reasons to be fearful? Yeah, well, so mine are kind of the opposite to what Emma was saying. I'm worried about uh, sort of COVID creep creating an ever less liberal state. I'm worried that people will start to say, well, if you could lock everyone in their houses, put us all under house arrest for the pandemic, why not for other threats? Why not for climate change, for example? Um, and I was particularly worried by what Jonathan Sumption told me when I interviewed him for this podcast, which was that when the government starts using fear to coerce people, freedom dies. So that was my not very jolly. <laughs> freedom <laughs> dying, that's your fear, okay. Uh, and you're cheerful. My reason to be cheerful is that next year cannot possibly be as bad as this one. <laughs> don't say that out loud. That's the most Eeyore-ish reason to be cheerful I've ever heard. Um, I'm happy to be held to account to, for my forecasting abilities. <laughs> I, think, I think it could be worse. I mean, you know, it could have all the same problems with less of the public and sort of public adherence or fiscal firepower to deal with it. Um, although, obviously, we've got the vaccine. Although so, I did see a story yesterday that apparently um, the UK is at greater risk of floods in January and February. So that'll be a nice way to kick off the is year. Is that the same every year or is it just this Yeah, year? apparently it's worse this year. Oh, good. Somehow. It's going to rain more. Wonderful. So. Fantastic. Great. Right. Sam, you, your reasons to be fearful is one sort of close to home and sort of day job. Um, well, it's, I, I'm, I'm sad to say that this is something that's going to affect us all. And this is the... Um, the rush and the, not the rush, but the huge consensus that the technology sector needs to be regulated. Um, and just in the past few weeks, we've had the European Union, the UK government, the House of Representatives in the US all come out with plans to regulate tech. And, um, you know, it's a shame because I don't think it's really going to work. Uh, I don't think it's going to bring about the outcomes that um, people want, which let's, let's be charitable. I think People would like more startups. People would like more innovation. People would like um, more uh, competition in these markets. Um, I don't think regulation ever really gets you those kinds of things. And um, I, I have to say, when it comes to Europe and the UK, I think the problems that we have are not to do with regulation of tech or even competition in tech. They're to do with you know access to capital, um, to do with migration and the difficulty of bringing talented people into the UK. Uh, to do with land use planning and the costs of setting up a business you know it's a sort of nuts and bolts policy items that um you know you can tinker around a tech regulation all you like but it's not going to get you the next google um if you don't change the ingredients for innovation and i i worry that actually tying these companies hands they're really innovative companies um they're they're you know we'll, we'll talk about in my reason to be cheerful um, some of the innovations that come out, have come out of them, but it's um, it's just a shame that people have this, I think, very old-fashioned view of um, maybe old-fashioned is the wrong word. They have a a, a a wrong view of innovation as something that only startups can do and that um, big companies are incapable of. And um, if you don't think that's true, and I don't think that's true, then um, tying these companies' hands could be really damaging to innovation with no real commensurate benefit. Mm -hmm. I would also encourage you to read Sam's article about why we shouldn't break up Facebook on CapEx, which uh, makes a very compelling case. And your reasons to be cheerful is, is kind of on the same note, as you said. 
So it's uh, to do yeah, with it's so race. it's I mean it's the classic it's the classic race arms race between government um, kind of trying to make markets worse and markets often beating government and becoming and just producing good things and producing benefits to people because you know in Tyler Cowen's words um, the the great American economist you know maybe the great stagnation maybe this era that he's identified I don't I don't really agree with him but he's identified that sort of innovation that's promoted economic growth has slowed down over the past sort of 30 years and he sort of thinks that maybe that's over and um you know in in biotech for example you know we've looks as if we're on the cusp of not just developing vaccines for covid but things like the flu the common cold malaria um crispr allows us to do gene editing in an incredible way uh deep mind has solved the protein folding problem um and in a kind of more direct way um i'm absolutely flabbergasted by the success of apple's uh, m1 chips now, apple's for a long time been by far the leading company in uh, mobile software or sorry mobile um uh semiconductors and chips but it's it's desktop computer and um, laptop computer chips that it's released have been far 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 better than those of its competition and you know that's intel um qualcomm and so on kind of amazing to think that a large the largest company on earth uh, very very vertically integrated lots of money lots of resources is still at the cutting edge by far of innovation in this kind of area and it gives me a lot of hope for um, the things that other businesses big and small can achieve in the next few years all right thank you very much sam and the final one uh from me okay so reasons to be fearful i've got the government's spending addiction so I'm concerned that not just on COVID, but on almost everything, the answer from government is just to borrow more, spend more for the state to direct everything, whether it's levelling up or responding to Brexit or whatever it may be. The emphasis always seems to be on what the government can spend and not on private enterprise or on long-term reform or any of those things. So that's me being at my Eeyore-ish. And my reason to be cheerful is a little bit more abstract, but... It's that because of all the restrictions we've had, people have been forced to innovate. Uh, lots of people have taken to different working patterns, which I think by no means great for everyone. But for a lot of people, they've meant you can be, you know, you can work from home. You can spend more time with your family if you like that kind of thing. Um, you can spend less of your time commuting. I think for a lot of people, that will mean that the future hopefully will be a bit happier, a little bit less sort of rat racy and... Also, it has the potential to solve, to an extent, some of our big, long, long deep-seated problems like Emma mentioned with housing. If people are able to kind of work from wherever they want, then there becomes less of a sort of pile-in into certain very overheated um, areas. So this is my slightly Panglossian take on the year. Um, I don't necessarily think it'll, it'll come true, but I, I hope it will. So it only remains for me to thank very much our panellists, um, Emma, Sam, Alice, Wish you all a very merry, appropriately bubbled Christmas. Um, and we will see you again for the CapEx podcast in 2021. So thanks very much. Thanks. Happy Christmas.